This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast trying to make sense of the media landscape that's seeping into our skulls whether we want it to or not. Today we're talking about video game storytelling. What makes for a good video game plot? How much storytelling really can take place in a video game without it turning into just a two-hour cutscene? I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, brought to tears by the epic tale of a man jumping over barrels to save his lady love from that monkey whose personality was warped through infusion with donkey DNA. I'm Erica Spires, and I'm just here for the mini-games. And I'm Brian Hurt. And really, isn't Sonic the Hedgehog just a ripoff of James Joyce's Ulysses? <laughs> I am Don Marshall, and I still haven't gotten over the death of Aerith. Ah, uh, I had to look up that reference because I never played any of those Final Fantasy games. Oh my god, you're all babies. <laughs> I think at least two of us are older than you. I'm just waiting for the Final Fantasy to be the Final Fantasy. Otherwise, it's just false advertising. <laughs> I've been saying that for about 30 years. <laughs> Just briefly, so Don, I invited you here because you are one of the hosts of one of the, I'll say, formative podcasts for me, Geeks On, which has not been on since 2012, something like 2008, 2000, okay. no, 2012. A right. long damn time ago. You are also <laughs> a video game professional and now in film. Do you want to say just a little bit before we jump in about what you actually do? Well, originally I was basically a lead designer for a casual games company. We made Video games based off of movies and TV shows for the casual space. I am very proud to say that I am the proud designer of the Murder, She Wrote video game series, <laughs> which uh, still shows up on like those top 10 lists of like games that shouldn't be good. So that's a point of pride for me. And now I work in TV and film development, trying to find properties that will cross over into the film and TV space. The first thing I started working on is a show called Wheel of Time that will be coming out on Amazon next year sometime. That sounds like a pretty sweet job. I like what I do. And I have to admit, I've been very lucky since I moved out to Los Angeles, getting into video games and then film and TV. I have never dreaded going into the office ever. I love my jobs. So so what's the best way to, for you to find something that will translate well? I mean, this actually is what we're going to talk about today, right? We're talking about video game narratives. What makes a good one? How have they developed over the years? Is this something you consider greatly when you are deciding what could make it to television? 100%. In video games, that was literally my job, to go find these properties and figure out how to turn them into video games. Like, with Murder, She Wrote, here were the criteria. I needed something that I could get really, really cheap. I needed to get something that people would pay attention to. And then I needed to get something that we could ascend above people's expectations. So with Murder, She Wrote, nobody thought it could be a video game, but everybody knows the property. It's the only game I ever designed that I got fan mail from. I got letters and posts from these people saying, like, I watched the show with my grandmother, and she's not here anymore, but by playing this game, I'm feeling connected to her again, which was literally my goal. I'm not trying to lift an episode and turn it into a video game segment. I'm trying to create a game that helps you feel the way you did when you watched the TV show. So for something like Law & Order or CSI, it's more about like uh, finding the clues. It's not mechanical, but it's methodical, right? But something with Murder, She Wrote... It was a hidden object game the first time around. It was an adventure game the second time around. But it was a murder mystery game that you could hug. <laughs> I like um, Wait, was that yeah. your tagline? No, it should be, shouldn't it? <laughs> I have various offensive things about old people going in my mind trying to use computers and calling their children. <laughs> like, I'm trying to play the murder she wrote game and I can't fit the CD-ROM into the floppy drive. Or <laughs> but, 
Yeah, my QA people hated me. But, <laughs> <laughs> but it's like that for TV, too. Like, this is a show I have not worked on in the slightest, but uh, the TV show The Expanse, right, mm-hmm. is a fantastic adaptation, according to the people who've read the books. You get the same emotional response. You get the same intellectual curiosity that you did in the books. So those are sort of the two big things that people tend to cite their favorite projects for. So as long as you can deliver that, people will be happy. Now I feel like I have so many questions about this, but I will let other people. <laughs> We're going to return, I think, at the end, or even we have a supporter-only thing that we usually do at the very end. I want to talk more about Geeks On and about, yes, let's focus on the topic here, which Don was good enough to find us some really good articles about sort of the different types of narratives generally used in video games, the history of that. Brian also found some things from a writer perspective. Maybe let's go around and kind of give some opening thoughts about this. Brian, you haven't talked much yet. Why don't you say a little bit about what you want to get out of today? You know, I, I do come at it from a writer standpoint. I play a fair amount of video games and I write, but they don't intersect much from my perspective. And I can't say that my best gaming experience have been the ones that are very story driven. I know some people think fondly about like the greatest stories or the great plots that they've come across in their gaming. You know, some of my favorites are things like Diablo 2, where, yeah, I totally admit, I, I don't pay any attention during the dialogue. It's like, okay, I'm just gonna, like, get through this and get back to the action and keep doing my thing. There is a darkness swarming and it will come down upon you and, and the god of evil. <laughs> <laughs> and this has all been really reinforced. Over the weekend, I started playing Death Stranding, and I'm so sad because the cutscenes take up more time than the gameplay. And I just... I hate it. I hate it so much. And I warned everyone in advance not to spoil it. And like, you might as well just spoil it because I'm not playing this fucking game anymore. Wow, really? Yeah. It turns out it's a walking simulator. It's like, oh, (laughs) put shit on your back. And if you stagger, you know, regain your balance. Oh, and then here's a cutscene that's 45 minutes long. So it's like zombie run without the actual physical exercise. God fucking damn it. That's money I'll never get back. Uh, my husband has been asked by so many different people if they should get into Death Stranding. And he's like, well, is your idea fun walking around while balancing several packages on your back and probably falling over and learning how to get to the next spot that will take you a very long time? If that's your idea of fun, then get it. And it is definitely my idea of fun because he's a weirdo. But um he also <laughs> thought it was really beautiful. There was like an article where some engineer, somehow he used his own treadmill he hooked Death Stranding somehow up to his treadmill so that he could actually walking simulate like just like <laughs> they're doing on the game. Like, ah, you might like that. He's actually taken a game and made it worse by requiring it to take energy to play. <laughs> you have to walk in your walking simulator to simulate walking. Well, so one of the topics, the sort of overhyped idea of you're contributing to the story. You're a player, so the story is not even complete until you come along. And so by that light, Death Stranding, when I was just playing it, is about an idiot that is trying to drive a bike up a mountainous hill until he is killed by ghosts. That is the plot of Death Stranding. I've just spoiled it for everyone. That sounds very deep. You didn't even talk about the baby being strapped to you. I have nothing more to say about this game. (laughs) Don, I was interested in the article that you gave us. When Video Games Tell Stories, A Model of Video Game Narrative Architectures by Marcelo Arnaldo Picucci. And I hadn't seen it kind of laid out in that structure. Do those four types ring true for you in terms of parsing this into discrete buckets or, or is it not really... 
for me, that's the vehicle. The way he lays it out, it's purely narrative structure, like a movie or a book. You're walking through the storyline, right? So even sort of the biggest action-oriented games like Call of Duty, it's just a narrative structure. The story is going to happen at called points no matter what you do. I think the next version that he lists was a semi-narrative structure where basically that through line is still there, but it has uh, little trigger points along the way that can cause non-linear storytelling where you find some of the story out of order because the game designers have made that possible for you, right? You can find out the happily ever after as a foreshadowing event rather than actually at the end of the story. The last one is sort of like a Red Dead Redemption style storytelling where the story is just scattered all over the place and you sort of pick it up as you go along and the pieces are not necessarily conjoined. And then the third one is sort of a online cooperative storytelling, I guess, where the story is consensual by multiple players, that sort of thing, sort of self-generated. I actually think in a slightly different terms, though. For me, it's an organizational structure for video games where you have the linear, which is a string of events that happens in the order that it's written as. That's what a screenwriter or a book writer is probably going to come up with when they first sit down to make a video game. The second version is what's called the string of pearls where it's basically a linear thing like the first one, except at certain points along the way, you can have these small branches that go off to give you side stories that don't end the game in and of themselves, but contribute to your understanding of the whole in the universe. And then the third is the branching structure where all of those little side paths actually lead to different end points in the video game and provide you with different endings. For me, that's sort of my way of breaking it down. Those all sound like different ways that writers write. Linear is the hard outliner, and String of Pearls feels very much like the loose outliner who kind of knows where they're going, and it doesn't exactly matter how it gets there. And then the exploratory writer has that, it'll go where it goes. It doesn't overlay perfectly on game design in terms of storytelling and, and even how someone might craft a story. There is some parallel. I completely agree. I think a lot of video game players think of the branching structure as being very new and unique to video games. But I was playing that in my Choose Your Own Adventure books when I was eight years old, way back when. It's been around for a long time, but the video game allows for more room, for more choices, for choices that you don't know you're making at the moment, which I think increases your sense of immersion and your sense of ownership of the story that you're in. This is my story. I made it. I mean, yeah, sure, someone else wrote it, and I'm walking through the things they wrote, but it's my story because I made those choices. And that's one of the things that I think is currently happening with video games is the dominant video games that you can think of that have major story have been contributed strongly by traditional writers, people with writer backgrounds. Honestly, that's how I think when I'm putting together a story. It tends to be more traditional structures. But as video games gained a popularity, you started getting more people coming in from other areas. Now you're starting to see people question, is this the end destination for video games? Or are we just on another step right now as we develop a new form of narrative, right? When people developed the written word, all we had at the time was storytelling, was verbal talking. And then when you added the written word, all of a sudden, shades of texture could be added. A stronger continuity could be added because the story wouldn't change anymore. That is a new element that was brought along by the new medium. It sacrificed some of the things that the oral tradition had, such as creativity and evolution, and that sort of thing. And so every single medium that we've come along with has changed the way we tell stories by offering new ways of doing it. I would say that the video game has not yet made that final step into its new form of storytelling. 
It's something that people are still playing with. Brian, you said that you haven't really connected with a lot of games that have strong stories. I almost feel like it's done in such a self-aware way. I'm thinking of Fallout 3, where there's an epilogue, and your choices are spelled out in this thing that sort of shows, well, by joining up with these people, this happened. And by not doing this, these people starved. And it almost seemed like this smug, self-aware, hey, look what we did for you. We let your choices determine the ending in this unique way. And I'm like, come on, man. I'm just killing stuff. Just don't lay that (laughs) shit at my feet. (laughs) That's totally viable. A lot of players are not interested in the story. That's why you can skip stories in so many games with cutscenes which would leave a story lover just baffled, right? But if you're there for the gameplay, they're just getting in the way. But can I just ask, if you can skip story without any consequences, then is it that important? I would say no. If you can skip a story and it doesn't have consequences, that means that the story has been tacked onto the game. Not all games are like that. There are some games out there where if you skip the cutscenes, there's going to be vital clues or elements. You're going to lose out on a a side path that you didn't hear about in time. That makes it a little bit more intrinsic to the game. The example I like to like give for what I consider to be an evolution in storytelling, I love the game Journey, if any of you can remember that from PlayStation 3. Journey, it was game of the year, the year it came out. You are playing as a small red cloak that is hovering above the sands of a vast desert. And at the start of the game, you see a star fall out of the sky and land on a mountain across the desert. Your abilities as the character is to move the cloak and to jump and to make a beeping sound. Those are the three things that you can do as this character. But as you wander through the desert, you find pieces of yourself through the desert, which makes your cloak longer and more elegant as you move. You find story elements that are not cutscenes, but like a mural on a wall that you can sort of decipher the information. The storytelling in that is so intrinsic to gameplay and dependent on your interest that you can go through and not pay attention. But I did pay attention, and I know a lot of people who did. When I reached the end of that game, it has not told me what it's about. I have decided by the pieces that I've found what it's about, and it rocked my world. I was at absolute tears when I reached that game. When I talked to other people about what I thought the story was, they told me a completely different view of the game, a completely different style of the narrative. And it was fascinating to hear it. That, I think, is the evolution of storytelling, where it's not just you being an audience member makes you part of the story, but your perceptions shape the story in a way that books or movies don't allow you to do. Does that make sense? Yeah, I really like that. I haven't played that game. I'm aware of it, but a couple different games by Playdead, uh, Limbo and Inside, both very similarly where you don't have the story laid out for you like that, but you you sort of tell it to yourself. And the counterexample to that is Braid, which is another one of those games that has just way too much text that I skip over because I find it really adds nothing. Brian, how did you read Lord of the Rings? Did you read it straight through or did you use the reference material and go back and forth? You just click skip to get to the... (laughs) You know, I tried reading it several times in my youth and I had trouble getting through the first one because of the travelogue nature of it. And the rock turned to scree, and the scree turned to scrub, and the scrub turned to brushy bushes. Like, oh my god. So I had to wait till I was an adult, and then I enjoyed it. I just found when I was reading it, I took so long to read. It would take me an hour to read 10 pages, right? Because I would go back and forth, and I would look at the reference. What does this mean? What is the history behind this? And I found that to be fascinating. And also, I loved the world that it created, so I wanted to be there longer, so I didn't mind taking the extra time to do that. I assumed that you were one of those readers as well. 
So I would think of a video game being similar. Like if you want it, as far as you want to go down that rabbit hole, you can, but you don't have to do it to keep on with the major story. I've heard this conversation before that goes into what Erica and Brian are both talking about in different ways, where there is an argument in the video game world about think of story and gameplay as being two things that fight for space, right? You're either 25% story and 75% gameplay or 75% story and 25% gameplay. And the argument is you can't have both at 100%. Like on the one end of the spectrum would be like the Telltale games, where I think they give an extremely admirable narrative. Like the Walking Dead games were stunning to me. And Tales from the Borderlands was one of the funniest games I've ever played. But the gameplay suffers because of that. It's mostly quick time events. And on the flip side, you have games like, sorry, you just said something like this, the uh, puzzle bobble type games where you're popping spheres, you have little creatures down at the bottom that are shooting spheres up at, at bricks up top, where there is no narrative. It is pure gameplay. I don't know. Those kitties really want to spite that farmer. They need to set those <laughs> animals free from the little, the little bubbles. <laughs> I really feel for them. But I think this either or argument is just because of where we are right now. Like most people who came from games came from movies. We think that way. You're seeing a new generation. Have any of you ever been to IndieCade? No. No. Okay, so IndieCade is a in-developer games developer conference here in Los Angeles where people from all over come in with little video games that maybe will get picked up by someone, but usually they're just designing them for the joy of designing them. These smaller indie games, if I recall correctly, Portal was based on something that was developed for Indicate. I could be... That was Narbuncular Drop was the name of the game that it was based on. And it was this princess no knees. So since she couldn't jump, she had to go through portals in order to get anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> See, I love that. And they do things there that push just gameplay outside of the video game space for video game designers so that you can turn around and then start applying it to video game space. So. As an example, when I went there, a friend of mine, Nick Fortuno, who's this amazing game designer brain, came up with a game, and forgive me, Nick, if I'm misdescribing your game, he came up with a game that was played in real life based on the idea of kung fu action movies, where the hero stands in the middle of a big group of people who all come and attack him one by one. And so he replaced that idea of basically just giving everyone in a circle around the middle player these sort of foam balls. You could huck them at, if you hit the person right, sort of like dodgeball, you got them out, but you could never throw it at the same time as someone else. It sounds so simple when you describe it this way, but when you're in the middle of it and the gameplay is happening, it's just something for your brain to chew on and it processes and develops into something else. One of the reasons why I, th I look to independent game developers to provide breakthroughs in gameplay and in narrative is because they're working with fewer resources. When you have all the resources in the world, you're pressured to come up with something that's going to be commercially viable to recoup your investment, which means you get safer, which means you don't push the limits. Star Wars. Yeah. 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 And it's true in games as it is in movies. It's the same thing as in theater, too. That's how I'm seeing it all the time in theater. You know, you have a lot of money behind it. You have to make sure that you have some sort of proof that it's going to sell. So it's not usually as creative as the people who are making something fringy where there's just there's not a lot to lose. It's why you see so many sequels in mainstream movies now, because if you're going to invest $90 million to produce something, you better show that it has the potential to recoup that money. If it's a new property, something that hasn't been made before, it's really hard to give any kind of metrics on that. So Star Wars 10, you got some metrics. You're probably going to make some money. It's easier to get the investment. 
And video games are not different than that. So when you have people that are producing things out of passion on a shoestring budget, I have seen some wonderful things at Indicate. Introducing story elements, I mean, that what makes it possible to actually do something new in that how many game mechanics are there really going to be? Like there are periodic games that, wow, there's never been something with a mechanic like Portal or something before. But for the most part, you know, if you're playing a shooter or you're playing a Diablo kind of thing, you know, RPG, it's going to be sort of like other stuff that's existed. The only thing that can really distinguish it is if you have a story that is a fundamentally new story. So that the mechanics of like life is strange is when I kept reading about, I ended up watching the first hour of it on YouTube <laughs> and I don't think it was significantly worse just watching it than it would have been playing it because it seems like the mechanics are so just like you can walk up to stuff and look at it or touch it. But like, that's about it. It's making decisions. So it's, you know, one of these choose your own adventure sort of, you know, nicely graphic, nicely acted theater pieces. So other than I wasn't getting to make the choices and there's a little bit of mechanic of you can turn back time in that. So, you know, when are you going to actually do that? When do you feel like the choice you made was not so good and you want to, you know, so there's a little bit of branching that I was missing by not doing it. But for the most part, just watching it was enough. We enable original storytelling by just saying, we don't even care about the gameplay. <laughs> you know, the gameplay is just something for the people to feel involved, but we get to tell a story that is at least potentially numerically distinct. Of course, it could still be a ripoff story, but that's the danger of any medium like that. I tend to look at it the way I look at television in that regards. Like, mm-hmm. I look at procedural shows and I just cringe inside. I die a little bit inside every time a new one gets announced. Because it's the same every time. It's the same format, the same flow. You usually know who done it because the murderer gets introduced at the same point in the show every week. However, that show serves a purpose. The procedural, the easy-to-watch sitcom that doesn't challenge, if you have that life that is just so hard and you want to turn off and you want to zen, just zen out, those shows can be very useful. I find... People look at video games the same way. The bubble popper game that I was talking about before, or say Zuma, that is sort of evolution of that, I find them sort of mind-numbing myself. I lean to something more like a Telltale game. I lean towards something like uh, the, the game you were just talking about with a strong narrative of going back and forth, and gameplay is pushed aside a little bit. If I want to turn my brain off and just go somewhere else for a while, I reach for the narrative. If I want to be challenged, I look for a more of a cross between the two. That's what I use to wake up. That's what I use to get myself excited and to enjoy myself. All of these games, I don't think any of them are actually bad. They're just for a different person who's using it for a different purpose. You know, to this day, there's still people who love Pac-Man to death. I think they just sold, what was it, Pac-Man Championship Edition 2 came out not too long ago. That game is nearly as old as I am, God help me. But it's still serving a purpose for people to relax, to let go. And I can't throw stones at that. Are they beefing up the new Pac-Man with more plot? (laughs) (laughs) If you think about it, they did. Pac-Man had no storyline whatsoever. Ms. Pac-Man introduced these sort of meetings between the two characters. And then, if anything, like, what was it, Pac-Man Jr.? Evolved the storyline established in Ms. Pac-Man. Yes, they did bring story to Pac-Man. It was the same type of storytelling. A lot of people say they refer to uh, Donkey Kong as being sort of the first narrative video game. Because when it starts, that gorilla steals the girlfriend and climbs up a, a ladder, and then every se- every single time you beat a level, he grabs her again and climbs up. Welcome to the next level of storytelling. It's simplistic, but it's literally transitioning you between two gameplay levels. So that has not gone away. It still exists. 
You know what drives me nuts? And this is where I think I'm a bit more with Brian on this. When you have the games that are, okay, you said, I know we have the string of pearls. What is the one beyond that? Branching. Branching. Until Dawn, I guess, would be an example of branching, right? I haven't actually played Until Dawn. So it's a, like a horror game, right? And there are so many different ways that that can end up. It is a choose-your-own-adventure type thing, and everything you do means something that could hurt you or help you later. Yeah. Anything that has multiple endings would generally be a branching game. A 10,000-page okay. script, according to one of the articles that we looked at for that. Right. That it was created by actual TV veterans and is just like Life is Strange, like the gameplay is almost nothing, but you're making choices. And so it is like exactly choose your own adventure. It is absolutely terrifying. Remy Malik is in it and Hayden Panettiere. So they actually have some like very good actors as a part of it. But what drove me nuts on that was, number one, it was already scary. And what you wanted to hopefully do is get everybody to survive at the end of it. So it was like a teen horror film, and hopefully you wanted everybody to survive. I found it so difficult to sit and play that with my husband, (laughs) knowing that something I did could inadvertently kill somebody later, that I couldn't finish it. And he ended up finishing it. And of course, he's a big trophy hunter. So there was like one result, he was trying to save everybody. And the next, he was trying to kill everybody. And like, that's what, you know, what it is. So But it took a long time and it was scary. So that one for me didn't work as well, even though I really thought it was well done. The one I thought was not maybe quite as well done, but I wouldn't mind playing again is not just because it's my name, but there is a video game. It's live action called Erica. And there are different things you can do and different outcomes that can happen. But they used actually live action events combined with some stuff you can tell is computer generated, but mostly it's live action. But it doesn't take too long. I think it was just a couple of hours of gameplay So it encourages you to try it again. And it's like a more successful Bandersnatch. Do the branching structure make you feel obliged to see all the content or play it all? You mentioned Bandersnatch, the Netflix Black Mirror episode that you did have to make decisions. When I watched it, I felt like, all right, well, now I got to see everything. And it got kind of boring because I had to sit through a lot of the same stuff over and over again in order to see all the content. And by the after a couple hours, I'm like man, this sucks. And I think I just ruined the experience. Yeah, I didn't do that. We we went back on a couple things and some of them didn't go anywhere. Like clearly they hadn't developed it to the point where you could see it through like the whole storyline. We played with it a little bit. And I think if it's a short enough narrative, if the storytelling is good enough, then maybe, it, I mean, Banner Snatch was the first thing done like that, right? For, as far as I am aware of for television. So I think that could be something that pushes the genre if it's actually really interesting in the way that they recreate those storylines. But it was so self-aware. It was, I think, a singular thing. And I just the nature of how expensive television is, I can't imagine that being a new format. We're we're not going to have Wheel of Time, Choose Your Adventure, Don? (laughs) I'm actually not allowed to comment on that. (laughs) (laughs) You can neither confirm nor deny. Erica, I'm curious, though. What was the difference in your reaction between Erica and the horror game you were discussing. Was it caused by the stakes by each decision you made? I think so. The stakes are so high in Until Dawn. And also, like I said, it's scary. It's all basically, you know, set at night. And it follows different characters. So you might be with one character for a while and then something really scary starts to happen and then it breaks and it takes you to another person and you've just gotten used to being scared and that you're in the creepy (laughs) basement and you're fine with that now. And now they've moved you outside somewhere and you're like, oh God, what's going to happen? So for me, it was a little too much. Are you a fan of the horror genre? I've become more of it. I can't go too far. It's like spicy foods, you know? And Erica was not a horror genre game. 
I wouldn't call it horror genre. I mean, it was different. There was a mystery involved. Mystery and thrill? Yeah, mystery and thriller. But it wasn't bloody gory like Until Dawn. I really believe a good video game with a good story, generally. I, I feel like the, the ones that don't provide story don't take you here. But they're going to provide an emotional response. So the horror games, they scare you. They actually they get your adrenaline going. And the romance simulators... They maybe make you feel like, oh, like everything's squishy and wonderful with the world and like people really do love each other. And that emotional response is a success. However, not everyone wants the emotion that a game is going for. <laughs> yeah. You have to be part of the people who want to feel that fear, right? Right. So what you're describing is actually a very good game that did its job and the job it was doing was not the one you were hoping for. <laughs> right. It was a little, you know? t- a little too much for my blood. It was funny, though, that the Murder, She Wrote games, I think those were, it was about sexual arousal, right? That was the intended feeling. Oh, yeah. Come on, Jessica Fletcher, man. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Going into this emotional response thing, I got my start way back when at Activision. And at the bottom of Activision in the basement is where they keep all the testers. And maybe it's because it's a basement or maybe it's because it's just an entire floor of guys aged 18 to 25, <laughs> it could get a little rank down there. And so th- I was talking to this woman who worked upstairs. She comes down there and is like, oh my God, the stench. How do you deal with it down here? And the only thing I could respond with is like, that smell is the smell of your success and your paycheck. If you come <laughs> down here and these guys are not being adrenalized by the action games you published, if it smells good down here, you're going to have a very bad year next year. Whoa. You know? I wish you hadn't spoiled my illusion because I always figured at the basement at Activision were all the patches that you could get when you took a picture of your Atari screen when Pitfall Harry got to a certain point. (laughs) You could take a picture and mail it in and they'd send you an adventurer patch. There we go. That shows you how old we are, Don. (laughs) (laughs) My people. I remember this. (laughs) I think a lot of times when people talk about a game having a particularly good story, as opposed to just merely good gameplay, they're not actually talking about the plot. They're talking about good setting, good characters. So like a horror game, you know, if it feels like you're in that, you know, so Dead Space designed as a horror game, it's really just a shoot 'em up. And the story, I'm sure, is there's a, a little bit of trick to it that I won't spoil. Bioshock was enough. Well, actually, Bioshock is a further evolution because that has. It's a little more moody. Yeah. You're, well, you were talking about in Journey how you're going around and discovering these kind of little clues and everything. That was the way story was in Bioshock that you're discovering recordings. And there's a little bit of, you know, realization at the end of the game, like, oh, this person who was doing these recordings is not who I thought or, or in Bioshock Infinite, they really turned it around. I think a lot of games that have, you know, your character has memory loss at the beginning or whatever, so that you can fully, as somebody just starting the game, so that you can then turn that around and like, oh, you find out actually who you are and how you fit in the story. So there's, there's a little bit to discover, but really, with Bioshock, just like with Dead Space, what makes it seem just immediately, like what's got to draw you in and makes it seem like there's a good story is just that the atmospherics are so good that like the characters are the way, you know, the scares are getting you to adrenalize. And I just wonder if that's, I think one of the things we read was saying like Red Dead Redemption, only one out of every 10 people actually finish it. If you're saying that plot is important or, you know, storytelling elements are important, it can't be that you have to get the whole narrative because 90% of the people are not getting the whole narrative and yet you still want them to go away even having played five minutes and saying, like, this was an immersive experience, this is a good story. I would argue that sometimes even a good story can be just stretched so thin over a sandbox game 
that it just won't carry you to the end. So like, I loved Skyrim. I genuinely enjoyed Skyrim. I have never finished Skyrim. I think I've restarted it like three or four different times because I don't want to just go straight to the end. I go off on all these side quests. And then by the time I get back to the main quest, I don't quite remember what I was doing and the context of the characters are gone. And uh, all of a sudden Fallout seems a little more interesting. And then perhaps unsurprisingly, I have finished Skyrim because it's like, all right, well, let's get to the end of this thing. And it, it sort of forces the big cinematic things that happen, right? And the, the big turns that are taken and the big fight that you get to have at the end. I've described my game playing before as algorithmic, that I like to just like click on everything, read all the books. And so with a game like Skyrim, you know, I, I get to the point where I've explored just every inch as I'm going and tried to be with every companion or whatever. Fallout 4 is another example, like trying to get every companion that you <laughs> that is available. You can oh, only yeah. have one at a time, but like try to go through the emotional growth with each of them and like treat those as little quests. <laughs> but by the time I get you know, with both of those games, by the time I'm getting toward the end, I'm way overpowered. Like, it's no fun anymore. Like, I've played yep. way too many hours, and so it's just not a challenge at all. And so that really takes the sales out of, like, actually then finishing it. Yeah, there's nothing quite as wonderful as being uh, running into a villain that you've had built up over three days and then taking them out with two shots because you've overleveled. A, a slight tangent, one thing that I just want to acknowledge that I think is really interesting Blizzard does amazing stuff with character work in games where there even, at first glance, doesn't seem to be any sort of character stuff, right? Going back to like Warcraft and uh, Starcraft and all that stuff, like you got a sense of character from the different units. My current addiction, because I, I like to play a game that will be done in 15 minutes and I can get back to work or go to bed or whatever. I've been playing a lot of Overwatch. Overwatch has no legit story in game. None. There is no narrative to be followed. However, if you play multiple rounds, the comments characters say to each other over the course of different matches start building a world that you could piece together yourself. And this is what I find even far more interesting. They do a bit of storytelling on who the characters are by just if you watch the way the characters hold their guns on the screen. Each of them has a different sort of hand animation that says something about the character. This one's twitchy and kind of crazy, so his hand shakes a little bit and the gun sort of is falling apart and is made of scrap metal in his hand. When he kills somebody every once in a while, like a hand will come up and make a little hand gesture waving at them jauntily. There is a story being told there about who these people are. Is that storytelling or is that backstorytelling? I, I think the voice lines between is definitely backstorytelling. That is absolutely true. But a lot of the hand stuff, and the, I have to admire so much what they did with the hand stuff, the little bits of the character you do see on screen, that is current storytelling. That is telling who that person is right now and what they're doing and what they like. It's not telling you their motives. It's not telling you their goals. It's just telling you who they are. That is a kind of storytelling, which I greatly admire. You're right. You mentioned in the article you shared also, I think there was a there was something about Aristotle, right? And the, the different things that are important when storytelling and wh what is the central one. And so in that particular type of game, maybe it's more about character than it is about plot. But character's still story, right? Brian, what do you think, writer? It only gets you very far. I mean, I don't think character is story, no. But that's what you were talking about at the beginning, Brian, of the different ways of how composing a story lines up with these different plot types in a video game. So I remember reading about how Stephen King does things, that he just, like, sets up his characters, sets up his setting, and then just lets them go. So through his imagination, sort of the internal logic of the characters will determine what happens, which is why maybe some of the plots end up not making 
a tremendous bit of sense by the end. Right. He has a heavy lift, which he must have a natural genius for of making people behave in authentic ways while not having them behave in predictable ways. Like That's really tough to do. And in a way that we're going to find interesting as a, a reader or as a consumer of the story. You can look at what the essentials of what a story needs and then say, well, you can bend the rules or you can even break the rules or not have. Here's a story that doesn't have a character, but it still works because it has all these other things and the person doing it is really talented or has a, a deft way of doing it. Or here's a story that has all the parts of a story, but it doesn't really have a plot, but it has everything else. Like a lot of things, you have rules and then you break the rules you bend the rules just enough or whatever, at a certain point, you don't have a story anymore. And if all you really have are characters, yeah, maybe you do and maybe you don't. I mean, I'm not the arbiter of anything. God knows. So <laughs> That is part of the fun of it is that everybody is, we have a whole lot of opinion and there is no dictated fact in any of this. Like one of my favorite radio plays that I ever heard is this thing called Under Milkwood by Dylan Thomas. It's a narrative story that takes you through a town from sunrise one day to sunrise the next. There's no real solid dialogue. There's no story whatsoever. But by the end of it, you know this town because of the glimpses you've had of each of these different characters that you've drifted through. So, yeah, I mean, I totally understand what you're saying. And uh, it depends what you're looking for in all of these things. It's sort of like, again, like I said, with video games serving different purposes for different people. I think for in film, not having a plot like that is often taken as the sign of high art. That you want out of high art is authenticity. And the best way to get that is a real slice of life. So whatever the characters are doing, maybe it's just in a, a historical setting. It's just like, if it's too gimmicky, if it's too contrived, and that's bad, you'd rather just have an authentic experience with these characters. I think that was Roger Ebert or Gene Siskel. I remember saying like, that's, you know, this is what I want instead of these Hollywood blockbusters. But think about that in, in terms of video games. Like I actually just played through all of The Last of Us. And that's the impression I got. Like, there is a, a little bit of a progression, a plot. Like, the goal of the characters is to get the, the girl from point A to point B. And there's a little bit of, in terms of how that plays out. But the joy of that game is just how the characters are interacting as they go. Kind of like you were talking about with Overwatch, Don. And I didn't notice any repetition at all in, like, you know, when you're taking this little girl around, the things that she's saying, you know, you as the the narrator, the one you're, you're controlling are more of like the butch hero, don't talk much type. Even that character starts to melt as things go on, even though that's as far from like an Oscar winning film as you might think. If really the appeal of it, a lot of the appeal, in addition to like pretty decent zombie killing gameplay is hanging out with these characters that are in a tragic circumstance and having them act pretty authentically and having their relationship develop like that storytelling, even though it's again, 90% character, 10% plot, I'd say. And it was beautifully done. So well executed. That opening is one of the most terrifying opening sequences I've ever played through and moving. And as a side note, if you haven't watched senior citizens play uh, the opening of the last of us, Go watch that on YouTube. It's really? <laughs> oh, it's so good. <laughs> okay. Looking it up now. <laughs> Can I ask? So Erica is a little unique in this group, maybe, that it seems like you've spent more time watching your husband play. Oh, I do not touch the controller. Mm -mm. So does that mean that a game that has a lot, all these cutscenes like Death Stranding is better for you or is what you get out of watching actually better for, you know, watching a shooter? Like there's a certain zone I get in just watching someone play an arcade, you know, standing behind somebody playing at an arcade. 
but that's completely different than actually enjoying a story or watching it like you would a movie. So what is your watching experience? Which of that, is it a mixture of those two things? Good question. You're totally, totally right. I definitely prefer a story-driven game to watch. He has been playing right now. He just entered a few minutes ago, and he is playing Days Gone. This game has taken so long. To me, Like, I, it was a story I was interested in originally, and it's kind of like a zombie-esque like, guy gets separated from his wife in the beginning, and you don't know if she survives or doesn't, and then he has to go on this long journey and kill all the on these different missions and kill various factions to find out if she's even alive. This one for me has gone on a bit too long, to be honest with you. It is definitely because there seems to be a lot of killing the same types of things over and over again. So yeah, not that interesting to watch. Those are days gone. You're not getting them back. <laughs> exactly. In fact, he keeps he keeps being like, oh, I don't really love this game, but I spent 50 bucks on it, so I'm going to finish it. That's called um, throwing good money after bad. Truth in advertising that all these games should be called <laughs> more wasted, <laughs> wasted time. Days or- gone. <laughs> but yeah, some of the Telltale games I really enjoyed watching. Uh, and I think that that has a good mix of both story and gameplay, you know, for active gameplay for him. So Death Stranding. <laughs> <laughs> like the cutscenes, not crazy about watching somebody walk through pathways and create highways. Well, The Last of Us, I also did even feel with that, that there's a lot of like, how many times is somebody going to pull somebody up a wall? You know, is like, am I going to give somebody a boost again? Like there's still, even with that, the gameplay itself, it's hard for it not to get a little repetitive. For me, the gameplay was okay. And I was actually very invested. It was just enough scary for me to like literally yell at him at times. I'm like, you've got to shoot it, shoot it. And he's like, I'm reloading. I can't shoot. You know, that was an excellent one. This one I feel like has just taken so like Days Gone has taken so much longer than that. And the story is not as good. So I find myself getting frustrated. I'm curious, Erica, if you've ever watched him play Ico or. Uh, no. Okay. So I feel like The Last of Us actually used some of the mechanics from uh, Ico. But uh, it's an older game, lovely story, but less stressful than the modern sort of gothic horror stuff. How do you spell that? I-C-O. Okay. So it's an older game, but it is lovely, and it's much more sort of puzzly than The Last of Us. Without zombies running at your face, it may be easier to just sort of watch. Yeah. Sorry, I feel like I've always been like a board game and video game matchmaker. I'm always like, you will like this. No, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> it's funny because like anytime we do a video game podcast on here, I always feel like, oh, I'm not going to know anything. And then I'm like, my God, I have spent so many hours passively watching video games. I, I actually know a fair amount. I, f- I actually think it's great to have somebody around if they don't know the subject you're talking about, because then they know what questions to ask because they don't know. Right, right. That's why they keep me around for the music podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> you and I can hang out in the corner of popcorn. <laughs> One of the articles had a good quote. The Doom co-creator, Jack Carmack, once said, story in a game is like story in a porn movie. It's expected to be there, but it's not that important. <laughs> Give it as a way to show how far things have come since he would have said something like that, that even the most recent Doom has a story, whereas the original one, like, nah, you could do it after the fact. You could... Yeah, even just the, the mechanics of when the storytellers get involved. Is, are they there from the start or do they design the game 90% of the way and then like write some dialogue? Or don't. I don't think there's any dialogue in Ico or uh, Journey has no – like you'd be amazed how much story you can do with no actual dialogue in the game. You spend so much time with these characters that you don't want their 
motivations necessarily to be so constantly telegraphed. Like if you're just killing zombie after zombie, you were saying that in Overwatch, like if they had, you know, one of the characters is trying to make enough money to feed his family and that's his backstory. And if like, as he's running around, like this will get me enough for a carrot. And, you know, just like constantly, <laughs> constantly saying that, like, unless it was for comic See, now I'm picturing Jean Valjean in Overwatch, and that's just awesome. <laughs> I must have a loaf of bread. <laughs> Overwatch is another interesting example of like, this is an FPS competitive game like that. There isn't a lot of opportunity for storytelling. So what Blizzard did was they left the video game to create their narrative. Like there are videos out there that are sort of Pixar level quality in writing. They wrote comics for it, but none of that is important to the actual game. But if you have read that stuff, the little nods to that in, that do pop up in the game are very interesting, including things like it turned out one of the characters was gay, but you don't know that inside the game. But if you happen to go into the cockpit of this area, there's a photograph of her standing next to another woman that you know is her girlfriend if you know the greater lore. It's the stories there for the taking if you want to put the work in for it. It just doesn't exist in the game itself, which I think is an interesting direction that i wouldn't consider very much since i just think about the game yeah well that's why star wars was made just to inform my playing of dark forces what is this all about oh okay no there's this whole movie i understand now star wars went in the opposite direction i actually didn't know about this until after i saw the the last one but the emperor's message showed up in uh, Fortnite. that's oh. if you want to hear the emperor's message to the universe announcing his return it's in a Fortnite clip. That's it. That's the only place you can see that. <laughs> That's crazy. So, it's so and now weird. on YouTube. Yeah, <laughs> which is to say everywhere. I guess yeah. As a last topic, that whole idea of we're not going to tell the story, but we're going to have lore. Like my son got way into like Bloodborne and Dark Souls series. Oh, Dark Souls. That does. That's another one. Like it's just combat. It's just walking around. Okay, here's a bigger boss, and here's a bigger boss. But apparently, like there's a very detailed lore worked out for that that you can then you know go spend a lot of time on youtube learning about but is it fan theory or is it from the publishers or some combination i'm not totally sure i like don's idea of like maybe this is fan theory that they drop a lot of hints in the game about kind of what the structure if they're if you're walking through a ruined world of what was going on before but that you have to piece it together and maybe there is a lot that's open to interpretation and i think the fan theory is such a huge part of modern storytelling in video games, honestly. It's almost like the oral tradition coming back. This never happened in the video game, but so many fans sort of believe it at their core that they make the stories. The stories go out there on YouTube, go up on fan blogs, and then that grows. And then sometimes it actually crosses back into the game. I feel like the future of storytelling may actually be like where the creators of the game put out a story that is a beginning and that the gameplay of the fans over time will actually create their own endings rather than just tracking a story that's been laid out before. I don't know how they'll do it yet. That's smart. Mm -hmm. Free labor. Yep. Well, that's the hope as you get better AI that, you know, you can get authentic. It seems like by the law of averages, if you really have smart AI in a really detailed environment and you give the, the player lots of choices that it's it will be like what I was describing Stephen King's writing method was but like how many times if you don't have an overall genius guiding that <laughs> is that going to turn into something any good like by parallel if you can say that people in an MMORPG have the ability to create their own narratives they don't have to do the quests but a lot of those narratives are going to be 
I made some more armor that I'm selling around or whatever. Like, that's not an interesting story to anybody. I don't know, if you had a component where you could, like, upvote something or not, then I think you could do it by crowdsourcing. I heard a story that I thought was really interesting. Apparently there was a guild in World of Warcraft many years ago that just decided they were going to create their own quest in-game. And apparently they would have, uh, like, members of their guild stand around one of the big cities just shouting, I need an adventurer to assist me in an issue! And then they would tell them, go here, get this stuff for me, bring it back. And then they would give them money from the, the coffers of the guild as a reward. They literally just created their own content by sitting around and performing it themselves in the game. I think that's freaking amazing. I would never <laughs> do that, but I think it's freaking amazing. I think for me, I would maybe get more involved in video games if I didn't have to use a controller. Almost like virtual reality, but like they can track your motions, right? Yeah. Motion sensor. I just feel like... There are just so many buttons to be pushed and messed with and so many ways for me to mess that up that it takes away the pleasure of what I get when I actually get to watch the game. So for me, I, that's where I would vote. Similarly, I just I, I played this game called Lego Dimensions and every now and then you have to loop, move a little Lego character from one part of the pad to another and that seemed like so much work. Like I am here to conserve <laughs> calories and the idea of like not moving my fingers even... <laughs> Like, like, I don't want to accidentally have my Fitbit think I took a step right. when I did not take a step. <laughs> <laughs> well, we should wrap up here. Thank you so much for joining us, Don. Did you have any sort of last thoughts about plotting here? Give different stories a chance. Aww. You'd be amazed some of the things that may touch you in unexpected ways. That's true of people, too. And probably one of those that <laughs> might touch you, to answer my own question from here, I, I see on YouTube, there is a Pac-Man World 3 from the PS2 cutscenes video that's 58 minutes long. So even in a Pac-Man game, there's an hour <laughs> worth of storytelling that perhaps will bring a tear to your eye. There's a birthday cake involved in the, <laughs> in the icon. And uh, Don, <laughs> never mind that recording button. Uh, it may say we're recording, but we're not. Tell us a little bit more about Wheel of Time. <laughs> just between the four of us well well so yeah let's uh wrap up the public version and then we will ask don a few more questions about his job and uh the geeks on podcast and stuff like that in the members only section thanks for joining us happy to be here thanks, thanks. don thanks listeners bye-bye Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com.